VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is a podcast from The Times, sports newspaper of the year. Hello and welcome to The Game, 40 minutes of intense football analysis from The Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti and this week I'm joined by Alison Rudd, Rory K. Smith and from beautiful downtown Rippenden, it's Ollie Kay. Later on we'll be discussing how much of a difference managers actually make. But first, we have to start at the Etihad. Now City and United, I, Ollie... The I, I want to start right off the bat, just get a general uh, sense here. Six points, return trip to Old Trafford. What percentage chance do you or what 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 what's your percentage assessment of the title race being over? Well, the questions are more about whether City have got the will and capacity to do what they did in the second half of last season and chase United down. I mean, at the moment, they're not really playing well. They're playing well in patches yesterday, but I would say it's their, their form uh, and their sort of lack of real conviction that, 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 that would make you wonder about that, you know, the time flow being over. It really shouldn't be, though. There's still you know, more than half the season left, six points. doesn't look insurmountable when... Um, when United don't look terribly convincing. Uh, Roy, could you make the point, though, that the fact that United do not look convincing, and, you know, let's face it, you've had the revolving goalkeepers uh, all season long. You've had that, that awful defending all season long. You've had this midfield, which has also been the revolving cast of characters. I think the stat was that, apart from Michael Carrick, no central midfielder for United had started um, more than 50% of the games. And they've just generally not played well. So you can see quite easily how United can improve. Vidic comes back, plays well. Johnny Evans plays the way he did at the, at the weekend. Cleverly starts playing up to his reputation. Uh, Darren Fletcher gets fit. Nani returns from whatever weird injury, real or presumed. He comes back from. Kagawa comes back. So you can see how they can get a lot better. Can you see how City can get a lot better. Can you, could you say the same for City? That City can also improve to the same degree that United can improve. Yeah, I think I think you can. I don't know if they can improve in in an, an obvious, equally obvious way. City to me look sluggish and uninspired, and slightly hungover and just a little bit kind of short. They they, they look. There's a few of them who look like they've put too much weight on in muscle, which has robbed them of their explosiveness. They look like Mancini's Inter all of a sudden. Really, sort of like. Lots of good players, no real cohesion. He's confused them because he keeps changing tactics. He doesn't seem to know his best side. There was this sort of truism. Sorry, can I just jump in on that, right? Because as you know... That's um, like 15 seconds I got before you disagreed with me, Gav. I don't know. It's, it's not a disagreement, right? 
Well, you said there, he doesn't seem to know his best side, right? I, I'm, I'm, it seems to be one of those words that, that we always throw around, or not me, because I think it's a stupid thing to say. But uh, I, I, I will leave you. No, no, in this specific case, I'm surprised you would use that expression. Because I, I think you could make the point that Sir Alex Ferguson doesn't know no. his best side, but he chooses his best side for the, for the yeah, opposition, which is, right? which is what a manager should do. I think my problem, maybe I phrased that badly, my problem with Mancini Thank is you. that he doesn't seem to know his best system, which always worries me a lot more. There is a degree to which you can change tactics based on the opposition. But if you're switching almost at random between two up front, one up front, four, two, three, one, four, three, 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 five, two, it just suggests that you don't know what, what you want to do and Mancini is inherently like most managers a paranoiac who wants to have every base covered it's why he signed Scott Sinclair just so he had a winner in case he might one day need a winner but he never uses him because he doesn't need a winner and I just think that that kind of crisis of identity is, is hamstringing City at this stage they haven't played I've not seen them once this season and thought yeah they look really good and until they can sort that out which won't be easy, easy given that they're going to use, lose Yaya Torre for all of January, who's, who's their most important player, that they won't be able to close the, the, the ground on United, even though United aren't playing that well. Alison, what's, what's your take on it? I, mean, I, I think we're all in agreement that neither City nor United have played well this season. In fact, uh, um, I think I read a little Twitter conversation with uh, uh, one of my favorite Twitter people to follow, um, Ollie K, uh, at Ollie K Times, um, about who's actually played well this season among the top sides in the Premier League. And kind of thought, it's neither City nor United, certainly, but they are top. So who do you think is, has got a quicker path or a more straightforward path to improvement? Uh, United, I think. Um, because there's something ominous about the way they they look quite ordinary and yet they pull it out and, and we all know that defensively they've been a bit shoddy this season and it's their gear changes and I feel that you can almost mirror what they do in matches which is go through the gears and when it matters they go into fifth I think they're going to probably do that from the rest of the season so they've been in on average third gear till now and still are top and I think they're now going to shift into fourth and they'll be in fifth in May I can't I, I can't see a way that they won't what with Ferguson's experience and the fact you've listed it already how they can improve Ollie I, in the summer I will hold my hand up I, I was I, I questioned spending so much money and giving so much money to Robin Van Persie. Um, so far, though, I think and I have to say it was wrong. I think, to be fair, we should judge it at the end of his contract. But um, he's been the difference. Where would United be if Robin Van Persie had moved to Manchester but to the city end? Is it as simple as that? And is that, or is that an easy, convenient whinging out for Mancini? Oh, big bad Brian Marwood didn't sign me Van Persie as well. Well, I, I think it's a very relevant point. I, I think United certainly wouldn't be six points clear. They would probably be more likely to be six points behind, or even more points behind if, if Van Persie was um, if Van Persie was wearing blue. Um, but they, they were not in a position to make a, a strong play for him, and it's in part because they've made such a strong play for people in the past. Uh, Alison, Ollie just said that if uh, City had given had given him an extra fifty grand a week, Van Persie might have gone to City. Um, I find that incredibly cynical, given the little boy uh, inside Van Persie who always dreamed of playing United. I, I assume you share my cynicism. Uh, yeah, maybe. Having actually having watched him uh, play against City, it, it kind of underlined that Old Trafford is where he wants to be. I. I mean, I can't remember Van Persie playing with quite that 
buzz at Arsenal. He was cooler at Arsenal. He was more professional, more, I'm doing a great job, this is my job, I love my job at Arsenal. But there was, there was, there was some, something passionate about the way he played um, at the Etihad, I think, which I think proves he went to the club he actually really wanted to go to rather than the one that paid more. Yeah, I don't, I don't, far be it for me to ever disagree with Oli, but I, I don't think United was the most lucrative option on the table. In the summer for Van Persie, I think he might. I, I can't remember, but he, he certainly earned more after tax at Juventus. Whether he wanted to go to Italy, I don't know. But I think City offered him more money. Oliver will know more than me. If they'd offered more money still, if they'd offered you know, another 50 grand a week, then I'm sure, I'm yes. sure it would have been a, yeah. an issue for him. And, and, and in terms of Everton's point, it's, it's also, it, I, I, I agree in a way, but perhaps it's easier to look uh, like you've got more buzz about you when you're winning big games how often did Arsenal win the really biggest games when he was there how often did he score a stoppage time winner in a game that sent his team six points clear at the top of the top of the table I remember seeing Arsenal sort of invariably lose the very biggest games um there was nothing mercenary about his demeanour at all, though, and you can sometimes see that in players, but not not Van Persie. I think he's changed. I think he's a a more rounded footballer, a happier footballer, a more effective footballer since he went to Old Trafford. Um, no, I think it was obviously an exciting game um, right up to the, the finale. Um, I think there's a number of people who had uh, very bad Sundays uh, in terms of some of their decision making. Um, I think we have to include Mancini in that. Um, uh, probably Nazri as well, possibly Joe Hart, although obviously we'll be praising him in a minute. I don't want to make a big thing about referees again, and it was all sort of overshadowed dramatic last-minute winner. I thought the refereeing crew were poor again. Um, I, I thought Tevez could have been sent off. It was that bizarre incident where Yaya Toure um, made that run, and he wasn't given advantage, and he stopped the play to go and, and book Rooney. Um can you just clarify for us? I know, like, advantage isn't an actual rule. Can you just tell us where it, since you're the qualified referee here, can you just explain to our listeners what the deal is with playing advantage? Well, you have to make a fairly split-second decision on whether there's an advantage is going to accrue. You've also got a lot of other factors to take into account, whether whether by stopping play you're, you're quashing... Um, uh, an over a hyper atmosphere, one that might get violent or out of control. It's a way of you might feel as a referee, authority is being undermined if you let advantage flow too often. You, you, sometimes you're told in courses, blow your whistle, blow your whistle, remind everybody you're there, let them know who's boss, and you know worry about criticism about whether you let the game flow or not later. It's it's about feeling the mood of the match and. It could be a huge mistake to be to. I'll catch up with him later and book him then. It's it's okay. it's a mood thing. But in this specific case, Rory, we can hopefully you and I can possibly agree that it was a pretty absurd decision. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's difficult with referees because, they, they, as Alison says, they've got to make so many. They, they get criticised every which way. So and someone someone nobody always would come. have criticised him if he had no, not, let that player not that and then gone back and booked afterwards. But I don't know. I just think the, the climate that we create. It's the same with I presume we'll get onto the, the coin throw and all that. It's the same with no. We're gonna we're, we're actually we, gonna. I think we should whitewash that. Yeah, quite. Well, but it's it, it's the same for referees as it is with fans and and, and everything. It becomes such a, such a massive kind of 
impassioned. There's so much hyperbole around football that it's, it is. I mean, I, I generally in match reports and stuff hate criticising referees because they they get. I think John Henry said they get 90, 95% of decisions right and that's pretty impressive I couldn't do that and I don't think anyone who's commenting could do that it becomes an incredibly easy out for managers to criticise referees I think it should be banned I think managers shouldn't be allowed to talk about referees and I think it puts too much pressure on them and we just get so excited about all of it yeah maybe Atkinson got a few decisions wrong but he probably got more right than he got wrong and <laughs> it doesn't there's smoke coming out of my ear there he got really more right everyone. than he got wrong we have to talk about what happened um, at the end, it was kind of like a, a trifecta of, uh, of badness. Um, you had uh, Rio Ferdinand allegedly being racially abused by somebody in the crowd who I believe has since been arrested. Uh, you had Rio Ferdinand being struck by a coin. Um, you had Rio Ferdinand inviting uh, a Manchester City fan to come onto the pitch and have a dialogue with him. Uh, no, just kidding. You had Rio Ferdinand um, being pursued by some guy who runs onto the pitch with a silly hat and green laces and Joe Hart intervening to usher the man off the pitch. Now, we know all this because there were some brave um, correspondents who were present at the game, uh, like Ollie Kay, not because we saw it on television because the cameras cut away, but that, I guess that's a debate for a different different time whether they have a responsibility to actually report what's going on or whether it's appropriate for them to just kind of pretend it's not happening. Um, but Ali, we've had stuff like this before in Manchester derbies. Is, is your take that things are getting worse or is this just kind of like a heated exchange and we don't want to read too much into it? I think, uh, I was just looking at the papers, five of the, um, five of the Manchester derbies over the last three years have involved City, uh, have involved United scoring a stoppage time winner, which uh, <laughs> suggests that uh, emotions are always going to be very high at that point. We've seen uh, a, a fan going onto the pitch at Old Trafford and confront Bellamy, and then we've seen um, the business yesterday. I, I mean, you cannot be surprised that United players were exuberant at scoring that, that, that last minute yesterday given the, the size of the game given the way it's gone Right um, you and I weren't there but let's idly speculate anyway because that's what we in the media do um I don't quite understand where the where the coin or apparently it was a keychain as was reported this morning on my television where it came from because he's right in front of the United fans. So if it came from one of the other areas, that guy's got quite an arm to be able to hit him. Um, and equally, I don't understand the City fan ran quite a long way to to get on the pitch. Does this make much sense? I mean, is, is, this, is this like a, a stewarding snafu here? Uh in terms of where the where the the, the metal object that struck Ferdinand came from, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It, it, it must have been a sort of fairly incredible shot, has to be said. Um, the fan, I guess, yeah, the stewards shouldn't let the fans through, but it's, it's it's really hard unless you have like a proper wall of stewards all over the stadium. When it, especially when it's the home fans running on, rather the away fans tend to be rather better sort of policed than, than home fans. You, that's always a risk. I don't think there's any. There was I was listening to the radio on the way back down from from Merseyside last night. And they were talking about should we have nets up like they do in quite a lot of European countries to prevent missiles being thrown on. That doesn't strike me as being a particularly that's bad. That's a Gordon Taylor suggestion. Yeah, Gordon Taylor, whose views I always listen to and think are worthy of the utmost respect. 
respect. Um, the you Nets, think that's a good idea, the Nets? The Nets, I, I don't think it's a desperately bad idea. I don't, I don't, I've got to admit, I don't think it's necessary because I think these are incredibly isolated incidents and what, what would probably help at all is if we stopped telling fans, and this sounds really hypocritical, I don't mean it to, that these games are the most important things that will ever happen to them. If we, if we had maybe a little less dramatic music and a little less apocalyptic voiceovers of finally the game will be decided, that sort of thing. <laughs> That's not helping. That if you, if you tell people that the thing that is about to happen on a Sunday afternoon is the most important thing in their life, some of them will overreact and they will take it too seriously and they will throw things at footballers. That's just logic. Unsurprisingly, I disagree with Rory. I think... Uh, individuals should be held responsible for their actions. Oh, yeah, no, and, of if, I'm not, I'm and I not think it's part of the skeptical it. spectacle. And if, if if you want to make it seem like the most important thing ever, then then that's fine. And I expect, you know, human beings to act like human beings. The vast majority of City fans did not run onto the pitch. And, you know, I, I, I think... I don't know. I, I think this whole, like, well, we got to be careful. We have a responsibility. You know, have responsibility. I mean, pe- pe- people should take responsibility for their own actions. Yeah, know? they should. I mean, no, of course. And I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying they have an excuse, but I think that there is a, there's a kind of QED about it and that, pe- that there are idiots in the world. That's impossible to deny. And some people will take things too far and will do things wrong. The other thing that I think is important to say is that th- it's not like this is a widespread problem. It doesn't happen all the time every weekend. There's isolated incidents just as, I don't know, like crime isn't, like, we're not all criminals, do you know what I mean? We, I, I think there's a danger that we take things, we take minor incidents, exceptions to the rule, and we treat them as though they are the rule. So yeah, putting nets up is, an, oh, is a massive overreaction. Well, Alison? I, 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 another thing I think worth pointing out is it, there's a danger of saying, oh, there was one bloke and he had a key ring and he threw it, he had an amazing shot and he caught, he caught Rio Ferdinand. Wow, but it's just a one-off. The reason it caught him was there were lots of objects being thrown and eventually one will hit the target if lots and lots are being thrown. And there is a tendency at corner kicks or in certain situations in matches for, for it to be raining coins and little objects. And for some odd reason, this is completely ignored. Well, it's, it's a phenomenon in football that people well, it, throw things. Often it's paper planes and cups and, and people laugh about it and it's dead balloons. And But sometimes it's stuff that can hurt you. Well, and we, want, we, we, we treat it as a, sort of a little aside that doesn't matter. That's well, what you have to do. You have to say, you, anyone caught throwing anything, you're out. Right, you get the final, final, final word on this, um, which is um, blame the clubs or the way UEFA do. Or blame the or blame the individuals since we have the tools to track down the individuals in most cases. I'm more inclined to go with the latter to say yes. that that it's you can't the clubs aren't responsible for sort of for what fifty five thousand inside the Etihad. They're not all sort of right. Man City don't take on a burden of care. I think City have to review their stewarding practices. That's fair enough. Uh, I don't think they should be punished in terms of forfeited in the game. Although if they did, very little impact. They lost it anyway. But I, I do. I admit. I, I agree with Ollie. There's no cover-up culture, but I do agree that the way that we treat it when it happens here to the way we treat it when it happens in Europe is massively different. Or Uruguay, for that matter. Yeah. All right, we spent so much time talking about the Manchester Derby, we won't be spending uh, quite as much time uh, talking about West Ham and Liverpool, and I apologise because, of course, West Ham won the World Cup and Liverpool have won five European Cups. Alison, you were there. I think you're, you think the fact that you lean slightly towards Liverpool, I think that's a matter for the, for, uh, for the record. Um, not when I'm working. Not, not when you're when working, of course. Okay, but did you face some trepidation? I mean, you're, um, Liverpool going away to West Ham, West Ham who beat Chelsea, the champions of Europe. There's no Luis Suarez, no Fabio Barini either, even though everybody's forgotten him except for me. Um, somebody named John Joe Shelby has to play up front. Uh, and yet, it, did it work out or not? 
That was weird. I I wasn't personally worried about it. I, I thought I was intrigued what Liverpool would do. And uh, what happened was that Liverpool played differently. There was a different vibe to the team and it was really going well, really going well. Uh, it, was, it was almost as if they had been told, look, we don't have Suarez, just... just uh, express yourself. You've all got a goal in you, and sure enough, with 11 minutes gone, Glenn Johnson reminded us why he's just—he's okay, he's one of the most attacking, beautifully attacking fullbacks in the world. And, it, and it, it was working. It was working. And then, and then there was this weird, weird substitution. Uh, Enrique's injured, so a defender goes off. So uh, Brendan Rodgers thinks. I have to prove that I am an intellectual manager and not make the obvious substitution. I will bring on Joe Cole. And Liverpool started to crumble because uh, Joe Cole uh, was from another planet at that point. And, uh, so it's Brendan's fault. And it went wrong, but West Ham were at fault because they couldn't punish Liverpool when they were going wrong. And we, we, haha, Liverpool slowly got back into their groove of the first 20 minutes and um, the, the, the better team, the team playing the more attractive football won in the end. Rory, um, if if, that was a comprehensive match report, (laughs) now if I were a professional footballer um, and my manager came to me and says, "Oh, look, you know, Luis Suarez isn't here, but don't worry, you've all got goals in you. Express yourselves." Those were my pre-match instructions. I would pretty much throw up. Um, Surely, Brendan didn't say what Allison says he said. About. Surely he had an actual plan involving Shelby up front in the movement and the tiki-taka and death by possession and whatever else. As as the man who invented passing, Brendan Rodgers, I'm sure, had a, had a plan to to deal with um, the, the absence of Suarez. I think that the, kind of the Suarez thing is interesting with Liverpool because he is obviously their best player by about... 100,000 million miles he's in a complete different he, he belongs in a much much better team than Liverpool does Luis Suarez but he kind of doesn't he's one player who doesn't really buy into Rodgers' philosophy does, Rodgers is all about the short passing the, the cowardliness of possession that sort of thing Suarez is inherently a brave player who takes the ball and then uses his remarkable ability to ricochet that ball off defenders legs to try and score goals which he creates himself and quite often, watching Liverpool, Suarez is at odds with the rest of the philosophy. They're all passing it about, sort of nancying around. He gets the ball and loses it, and he gets the ball and loses it, and then one, one in every ten times he'll score, and that's kind of his genius. Um, so I think that- As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
did have to adapt. Which, what... but but do you agree then? Without him, with him not there, it it, it meant everyone else in the team were, were, were sort of like had a mini spotlight on them. Do you yeah, know? and do you see what I, I mean, think, it I wasn't that... all about Suarez. It allowed yeah. other people to feel well. We can we can we can try and play these patterns out. I think that that's right, and, I, and you, you do wonder whether long term Liverpool might blossom without Suarez because you need to have 11 players bound into that philosophy that said I don't think it's a risk they'd necessarily want to take oh, to, no. to see as a match winner um, but the question now I think to sort of throw it forward is is that's Liverpool's first back-to-back win in the Premier League this season it is, it is. Um, achieved by the man who invented passing Brendan Rodgers and they've got a relatively kindly Christmas and because the rest of the league is so sort of is it accordioned? Is that what you say? That, what's that concertinaed. Concertinaed. It's, it's concertinaed. Um, th- there is a chance, I think, that by the end of by end of December, they could be Fourth. in a position that they do not deserve. Ali, uh, enough Liverpool talk from these two Liverpool fans. Let's talk West Ham since they won the World Cup. Um, Diame gets hurt, and it looked to me like the bottom kind of fell out. He's got this... Uh, I guess there's contractual issue with the club where he could leave for not very much money. 3.5 million. 3.5 million. Can you shed some light onto this about why you would sign somebody in that position and don't they have the brilliant Karen Brady running the club? I mean, is this just a screw-up from West Ham? Well, it seems like it's good that it's quite such a low fee in, in, in the contract. I mean, it's, it's that kind of thing is often standard when a uh, sort of mid-table or lower to mid-table Type club um, signs a player who aspires to, to better things, but, but he was, you know, he was around and available last summer. Other bigger teams looked at him, and, and I think he probably thought, well, West Ham's going to be my springboard to, to better things. And so it's fairly standard that there would be that kind of clause in his contract. But, I, but three and a half million sounds incredibly low, and. and uh, I can only imagine he's got a very good agent or a very persistent agent who, who managed to on. Well, I, I would imagine actually that uh, West Ham, and I don't know if it was Sam or or, or Karen Brady or the, the the two owners, somebody really dropped the ball on this one. Um, because I, I think it would be a it would be a huge loss, and it's in his shown that he's clearly worth um, worth more than that. Um, but but Roy, just to uh, uh, wrap this on uh, on West Ham. Um, we talked about the good results early on. Um, are they flattering to deceive, or should they be thinking in terms of European football? And if so, does that kind of suggest that maybe some people should be eating some humble pie over Allardyce? I'm trying to work out how to phrase this answer in a way that you won't automatically disagree with. They shouldn't. <laughs> they shouldn't be as a matter of principle. Uh, they shouldn't be looking at Europe because I think Europe's too much for West Ham. What they will do is survive with absolutely no difficulty whatsoever. I think they'll finish sort of tenth, eleventh, twelfth around there. Um, I don't think there's any. I don't think there's any humble pie to eat with Allardyce. Allardyce does what Allardyce does. He always has. He always will. Um, it's not very attractive. He's there's something there's something really. I, I saw I saw them against Chelsea and they were brilliant second half. And Diame, the good Diame turned up second half against Chelsea, which is not the Diame that you always get. Which is why Diame is playing for West Ham and not for one of the bigger teams. Um, but there's something just in, insufferably smug about Sam Allardyce. Whenever anything happens, it's always his own genius and how great he is. And it's, I think he's a good manager for what he does, and he, he'll help West Ham survive, as I say, with ease. But I just, just wish he wasn't so smug about it. Right, we, can't, I mean? we can't end this with him on, a, on oh, somebody no, no, saying no, something no, mean no, about no, no, Allardyce. Let me, just, let me just say, Rory, 
if you'd been in the press room after the game and you were talking smug managers, Allardyce came out of it looking really quite modest and sweet compared to Brendan Rodgers, who gave a lecture on how we do not understand that there are two ways to play the number nine role in this country. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, Brendan Rodgers is also horrifically smug. I... Uh, Ollie, I wasn't going to give one of these two guys the last word, but instead they decided just to mock two of the greatest British managers around, Brendan Rodgers and uh, uh, and Sam Allardyce. So do you want to say something nice about Allardyce? I I do. I I, I like both of those managers uh, a lot. I think they're both... No, 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 not both. Not both. Let's leave Rodgers out of it. We talked Rodgers enough that we'll boo in the face. Just Allardyce, Uh, please. Allardyce... In terms of what he does, he's, he's fantastic. He organises teams. If you look at, if you look at his season by season record uh, in the Premier League, Bolton, Blackburn, Newcastle, uh, West Ham. If you look at what their expectation would have been going into each of those seasons, apart from his whatever it was four months at Newcastle, I would say overachieved in every position he's been in in every season. You're talking relative um, to wage bill and spending, because of course Allardyce bill, has to be judged to, on that too. Yeah, exactly. he's in charge no, no, of relative to, to wage bill, relative to everything else. But picking up all these players like Diarmo, who others sort of passed over. Um, I, I think he always does an extremely good job, and people will talk about his style. And, Okay, and you guys all agree that dude. that if he's smug, it's because he's entitled to be. It's kind of like Kid Rock, right? It ain't bragging if you say it, then you back it up, right? Uh, there are about a dozen smug managers that put in the Premier League. I mean, Putin is, is one of the few that comes to mind as an exception. Nigel Atkins is an exception. Most of them are smug. Yeah, they are. They are all smug. And I, I just want to make this clear. I didn't say Allardyce is a bad manager. I just think he is a smug manager. I, I don't think he's, he is great at what he does. It's not to everyone's taste, I guess. But yeah, you can't criticise his record. He is just smug, and I don't like that. Right, in our debate this week, um, I'm going to throw out a slightly philosophical question, and then we're going to get all sort of pretentious, like like I like to be, and I'm sure at least one other person here likes to be. Um, and is, what do managers actually do? How much do they actually contribute? The reason I throw this out there was there is a school of thought that says that wage bills and spending, net spend, not just that summer, but over the previous three or four years, are really very accurate predictors of how a club are going to perform. And that with that in mind, it really doesn't matter who's in charge of the club. there's even a, a suggestion, Tony famously said, uh, that a good manager can maybe make a team marginally better. A bad manager can really screw things up. Uh, and I want to chuck this uh, I want to check this out there to get your thoughts. And I'd maybe massage it a bit with the caveat that if you're coached by Tony Pulis or Zdenek Zeman or Pep Guardiola, you will, you know, there is a huge impact there because they have a very distinctive style that's very different from sort of the the mainstream, each in their own way. Um, But most managers would probably make most of the same decisions most of the the time and play and run the same types of transfer sessions and, uh, sorry, run the same types of training sessions. So with that in mind, Ollie, does it make a huge difference? I think managers can make it an enormous difference um, and it's not just about what they're doing in terms of in-game management it's, it's about how they manage players I mean in-game management is just a very very small part of what a manager 
as during their does during their working week. It, it's it's an extremely small part of it. In fact, it, it's obviously the most high profile and most scrutinised part. But um, I think I think the rest of you know everything else from from whether you clamp down on the player turning it five minutes late to play or, or whatever else, I think that is all part of the, the framework in which the team perform. Right. Yeah, I think they. I agree with you inherently, Dab. I think that. No, no. So can I just pause it? This isn't. I am merely the moderator. Okay, you're the conduit. I'm not taking a position yeah, on this. Conduit. So right. So, so you could just say that you disagree with Ollie, so, and we'll have a debate. Well, I don't necessarily disagree. With, so the Sotronomics kind of rule says that 92% of lead position is determined by wage bill, which in Sotronomics is kind of weirdly transliterated into if you pay your players more well it t- sort of carried into transliterated yeah I think it kind of becomes the idea that idea becomes that if you pay like a group of like plumbers 150 grand a week to play football they will automatically finish no it does it that, that's the way the book yeah. kind of reads and it's, it's, it's one of the flaws with it also the way they the way they do the research I mean, we'll get sidetracked on the book the way they do the research also because they look at it over time what tends to happen is a team does well and so then the players get paid more money the following season and then it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah. so that's the, the the idea of the people who think that managers don't matter is that there is a maximum of 8% impact they can make in that situation. Now, I think that figure is wrong. I th- as you say, it's, it, it's kind of a, it's a massaged figure, effectively. But that's not to say that... So then, on the other, yeah, on the other side, I guess you've got that managers make this sort of huge difference. They're the key figure in, in football history. You look at all the great names who've kind of dominated side, Bella Gutman, you know, and others who I can't think of immediately. But you've got these <laughs> enormous figures in football management who are trying to dominate history. That Shankly guy was... Yeah, that Shankly fella at Liverpool. Yeah. He's, he's all right. Jock Steen. Um, Sir Matt Busby. Sir Matt Busby. Uh, uh, Herbert Chapman. Jerry Francis. People like that. The, sort of the, the figures who sort of stride across football in, in an incredible way. I think the truth probably lies somewhere in between. I suspect the percentage difference that managers do make is small, but then in, at the elite level, the margins are so fine that even if you make a, a 0.5% difference, then you're, you're, you can have a huge impact. Now, Alison, I want to get your take on this, modulating what he said by what Roger said, by the fact that the theory as it was put out, and, and an executive at AC Milan tweeted this last week, that you know the argument with managers should be, like with doctors, above all, do no harm, that they can have a small positive effect, but they can have a huge negative effect if they do things badly or in a weirdo, unconventional way. Do you buy that? Well, well, first of all, once you've introduced the caveat of Tony Pulis, you're you're saying managers are capable of having a huge impact. I'd argue he does have a huge impact. And he he does. He chooses to play. Therefore, all managers are capable of having a huge impact. It's just they don't all have the, um, the the power and the faith from the chairman to be given that clean... Swipe at it to go for it. No, no, sorry. I'm arguing he has a huge impact because of the way he plays, which is different from the way most other teams. When I'm arguing back at you that once you accept a manager can have an enormous impact and shape a club and shape a way a team performs and keeps them in a division that most people think they shouldn't be in, then all managers are capable of that. So what you have to think about is why all managers do not have that framework, and it's because clubs have different chairmen and there's power struggles and there's length of tenure and there's personalities which are too scared to make the big, big, big 
changes. Well, there's also out such there. a thing as best practice, which maybe is why I mean most so football may, uh, clubs so play ultimately you're similar right. Ways, in so the, 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 yeah, points. the 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 more cowardly manager or the more conservative manager will make those decisions that you say are. are of, of a part that everyone makes similar decisions so what's the point of a manager and the point is you appoint a manager who fits your club and if you've got a club that can cope with a manager with um, strength of character and a philosophy then he can make a difference if you allow him to make one if the managers don't make a difference the players have to make a difference you can't just have this entity that finishes in the same place right, all the time but if you look at the money that Liverpool invested on players and you look at Liverpool's wage bill and the same thing goes Villa it's pretty consistent with where it was last year. So, again, putting my Stefan Szymanski, Simon Cooper hat on, uh, and again, I am slightly playing devil's advocate here, I'd argue that they're kind of finishing pretty much where we expect them to finish. Which is the wage bill defies everything, which is the, pl- the players define the logical... Wage, I, I throw spend in it too, but probably spend over time, spend over the last but three, the, four years. The, the argument in soccer-nomics is that, is that the, transfer, the transfer spend is, is much less linked to league no, finish. I know, but I, I think they're wrong on that one. Um, well, yeah, but all right, so if you take... Yeah, Tompkins right. has argued the opposite, transfer spend is more important. The finances right. define where you finish, right. but the finances are the players, aren't they? Just you, you pay... If you right. trying to take out the absurdity of the conclusion of that argument, that if you pay... Like loads of plumbers, 150 grand a week, they'll finish fifth in the Premier League. It means that the, the more you're paying, theoretically, the better your players. Mm-hmm. So you finish where the players are. So the players are the defining factor, not the managers. But I think what what I think we all agree on is that the managers can do have an impact. However, however big that that impact is, they do have an impact, and that in a sport of fine margins makes a huge difference. Well, um, I, I'm really fascinated by this subject. I, I, I do believe in managers and tactics and work methods, um, but I, I love hearing the, the opposite argument too. And I'm not my mind isn't fully made up on this. So maybe we'll c- come back to this one day, Rory, with with different guests in who may maybe give us different viewpoints. All right, enough of that. Time for some quick hits. Fernando Torres bags two as Rafa Benitez wins his first game for Chelsea. Rory, they're now off to Japan for the World Club Cup. Is that a good thing? And are you ready to say El Nino has turned the corner? Uh, I'm not ready to say that yet. I think that the slightly more direct style that Benitez has implemented at Chelsea is starting to implement at Chelsea suits Torres better. I, I don't think Torres will ever be the same player he was at Liverpool. I actually think the player he was at Liverpool might be an exception to his career. Um, Japan is not ideal, but I think there are the silver linings to it. I think that will help Benitez train the players into his ideas much more. And in the, in the, almost like a training camp. It's like a nine-day training camp. Um, so it's not a great thing, but not a terrible thing. Not sure how it is a nine-day training camp when they're actually having to play matches. But anyway, uh, just when we were ready to praise Tottenham's good run, Everton had unleashed a terrors of the earth in the second half and grab a dramatic late, late win. Ollie, did they deserve the three points? And will you offer a percentage chance of a top-four finish for those lovable toffee men? I, I cannot say whether they deserve the, the three points. I can say that uh, two goals in the, in the final ten minutes of the game are representative of a team like for example Manchester United in 99 that have uh, that fight to the end never know whether they're beaten and have a great spirit I, I thought the Yelovich celebrations and the celebrations when he came onto the, onto the bench were fantastic I also thought the anticipation he showed um, to score the goal was incredible I don't know if it was another player in the league who would have done that and um, as for top four I said, uh, I said back in September I could um see them challenging for it, and, and, and I really do. I, I think they're looking like the fourth best team in the, in the league at the moment. Percentage, percentage they finished top you know, four. I don't do percentages. I'm, I'm saying they are my favourites. 
Roy, can you just jump in and give me a percentage number? On Everton finishing the top four? Yes. 53%. Thank you. Jason Punchin scores as Southampton topple Reading. Allison, we mischief makers in the media were suggesting Nigel Atkins' job was in jeopardy. Surely everything is fine now? Yeah, he has um, three things going for him. One, the fans love him, and uh, I think the fans would be happy to stick with him even if he did take them down, and that's, that's loyalty. Uh, two, he appears to have learned how to defend and be pragmatic. Uh, there was some slight naivety at the start of his Premier League campaign. And third, he knows how to quote from the Rocky films. I might add a fourth, which is that he has the best, most intelligent, most handsome, best-dressed uh, chief executive in football. Arsenal defeat West Brom 2-0, but Santi Cazorla doesn't live up to his name as he dives to win the first penalty. Rory, you've been voted likeliest game podcast pundit to defend cheating foreigners, so do your job. Uh, diving is part of the game, seeking any any advantage uh, at whatever cost is, is inherent in sport, and even for those Puritans amongst us who don't like it, uh, as Tony Castrino points out in the Times newspaper on Monday, uh, as long as the FA and the Premier League and whoever else don't have retrospective panels to, to punish diving, you are effectively condoning it, so yeah. you, you get the game you deserve probably prospective panels they'd have to introduce mind reading panels as well the Chris Huden revival continues as Norwich uh, go to media darling Swansea and win 4-3 Ollie Grant Holt is back on form uh, just why have Norwich been so good lately uh, it's a bit of mystery to me I, I would have said um, in September that they look like they were, who were probably favourites along with QPR to go down and, and if you look at how they've done since they, they've really tightened up defensively although that's not evident in a 4-3 win um, but they've also really started to counter-attack in particular very intelligently um, they, they, they just look like a team who's, who, who all know their jobs they're all playing well and they, they've got a bit of momentum and, and they, they seem to have got over the Paul Lambert uh, departure and, and uh, bought into the I just say Tete and Houlihan, Houlihan and Tete. Speaking of Norwich, their former manager Paul Lambert is also on an excellent run, or actually he's Paul Lambert when he does well. Uh, what's more, Darren Bent actually got to play a few minutes. Allison, uh, Villa are packed with youngsters, and it seems that Bent's mysterious exile could be over. He did come on the second half. Reason to be excited in the Midlands? Oh, yeah, very excited if you like watching teams that don't score goals. Villa has scored the fewest in the Premier League. Uh, excited if you think that being really strict about who you're playing every week. Uh, they're young, they're inexperienced, and they're they're not they're not showing defensive resilience. They're clinging on. I feel they are hovering above the relegation zone. So yeah, it will be exciting. Will they go down or not? All right. No love for Lambert's young guns there. Gab, I've got, I've got a question for you. Have um, you, Rory? I do. I have a question for Gab. How exciting. Uh, it's almost like he scripted it himself. I, I hope he's got an opinion on it. Did you find it in a Christmas cracker? I did, yes. Lionel Messi, the Argentina and Barcelona... Lionel. ...left winger uh, slash... Uh, diminutive forward uh, made history last night Gab he scored 86 goals in a calendar year can you put it in context for us in a way that isn't just repeating that sentence yes well Lionel, history, Lionel Messi made history last night so that's 86 no. <laughs> um, well what's interesting to me is you put it in historical context he obviously beat the record uh, which was set by Gerd Muller back in 1972 and uh, I, I was kind of wondering 
is it more difficult to score a bazillion goals today, uh, the way Messi and Ronaldo do, or it was it more difficult back then? And um, I'm, I'm in two minds about it. One of the big things was back then, Garrett Muller kind of the teams tended to defend a lot deeper. Garrett Muller used to hang around in the six-yard box um, and scored a lot of goals that way. But then against Garrett Muller was also man-marked uh, in a very, very tight space, whereas Messi faces zonal defenses, defenses, teams that defend up the pitch, has got more space to play in. I honestly don't know. I just think that Messi and Cristiano are, and you have to put Cristiano alongside him because I think he's definitely in the same ballpark in terms of goal scoring. These two guys are just complete freaks of nature who, who surpass everything else in the game today. And I think we're only really going to realize that a few years from now. And yes, that does include Radamel Falcao, who scored five goals on Sunday night. That's all we've got time for this week. It's been fun. Come find us on Twitter to share your thoughts, or you can email gamepodcast at thetimes.co.uk. You can go to thetimes.co.uk for all your news, your views, uh, web chats. Rory, you've got a web chat coming up in a few minutes. I do, yes. Of course, by the time this podcast goes out, it will have come and gone. So remember, next Monday, you can web chat with Rory. You can web chat with me on Tuesdays. You can even web chat with Ollie Kay. I I thought he didn't do web chats, but um, apparently he does. So it's on Wednesdays when he doesn't have too much going on. You can chat away happily to Ollie. And of course, the last Monday of every month, you can web chat with Allison as well. Although, uh, bring your literary hat because, Allison, you chat about books, right? That's right, Gav. There you go. Jonathan Franzen and all that? Or do you not do nonfiction? We do fiction, nonfiction. Just, Serious just, books? Just bring your literary hat, as you say. There do you, you do, do you poetry anthologies? <laughs> Not yet, but <laughs> open to suggestions. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Rory Smith. Till next time, bye-bye. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.